and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good afternoon in Pretoria to Tembinkosi Ngoi, who I apologize in advance for, for not doing justice to your last name, but I will actually do justice to your Chinese name, Guoyi. Uh, Tembinkosi is the managing director and co-founder of Frontline Africa Consulting in Pretoria. And he's also a former South African diplomat who spent four years as an economic counselor at the embassy in Beijing. And so there is no better person to have on the show to talk about Sino-African economic relations today than Tembinkosi. A very warm welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Uh, thank you for having me on, and it's a pleasure for me to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you because the talk that everybody is focusing on for these past two or three months is really what is going to happen to the Sino-African economic relationship in light of the dramatic economic events that are going on in China today. Uh, and what we're talking about is, and we mentioned this in our last show, and we'll not go through the, the whole litany. So if you want all the background, we encourage you to look at the previous show on the, uh, on, on the state of the Chinese economy as it relates to Africa. But there is concern, and there's lots of serious concern. And one of the, the more interesting kind of aspects of all this is the relationship that South Africa and the exposure that South Africa has to the Chinese economy. So today we're going to talk about the broad strokes of the South African and the African economic engagement in Africa and what's at stake. Now, Tembinkosi recently penned an article for the Daily Maverick, South Africa and China Embedding Local Value. And you really talked about all of the different, the risks that now entail for South Africa to engage itself so closely to China. So before we go into the focus on South Africa, I just want to do a kind of a step back kind of question for you. Looking back now at how deeply engaged so many African economies are, where now, you know, a dozen or more African countries have their largest trading partnership with China more than any other country. Do you think in hindsight that this was a mistake for Africa to embrace China so closely? Look, I suppose different people will have different perspectives on what Africa should be doing with the Chinese. But if you ask me, that over the last, say, five to eight years, what benefit has there been for the African continent in the partnership with China? I think it's quite plain to see that this has been a positive move on the African side. I mean, if you look uh, over the last three years or so, what other countries that previously had almost deserted uh, the African continent and focusing their efforts elsewhere, in particular in China, you see now, because of the amount of money that Chinese companies and the Chinese government has been putting into getting the African infrastructure in an optimal state, you see more countries are beginning to re-engage with the continent and more money is beginning to flow to the continent. And I think even in instances where you can't measure the positive sentiment in terms of dollars and cents, you certainly hear a slightly more upbeat and more positive take on African economies and where these economies are going. If you look, for instance, at Ethiopia and what Ethiopia has been able to do with Chinese money over the recent past, you begin, I think, to see the level to which China has been able to influence the economic discourse on the African continent. But also, I think it gives you a sense that where over the last 20 years, probably even longer, you've had this uh, Washington consensus and this orthodox way economic planning is concerned, 
where government basically had to step back and allow markets to direct where economies should go. With China's rise and China's almost positing itself as an, as an alternative center of influence, you see that countries are no longer so beholden to economic, uh, Western economic imperatives in a sense, though the West still largely remains the largest investor uh, in these economies. Moving forward, I think if you had to ask a lot of the economic planners around the African continent, I would imagine and I would certainly hope that a lot of them factored into their equation what would happen if a slowdown ever occurred uh, in the Chinese economy. I think a lot of people have said in the past that at some point China had to slow down. So it wouldn't be a case where this was unforeseen. Perhaps the timing is a bit too quick uh, for some economies, and there's certainly going to be a lot of pain that economies will have to go through to adjust to that. But I think if you look within the Chinese economy itself, there are certain factors at play that I think also present an opportunity for African economies to diversify their economies, in a sense, away from the more primary mode of production or economic activity and to move slightly higher up the value chain. Again, if you look at what Ethiopia has been able to do from previously exporting untreated uh, skins, uh, animal skins, to actually developing a textile and footwear industry, and if you look at who's actually putting money in that economy, it's actually Chinese investors who are beginning to look at where else in the world can they set up bases to do what they've been able to do in China over the last 30, 35 years, where they were taking advantage of cheap labor in the Chinese economy. But now, because of the adjustment, in a sense, of the labor, the labor costs in China and the government drive to have the economy become a bit more technology-driven, in a sense, those, econo- those companies are not going to go out of business. People will still buy shoes. People don't stop buying shoes. So the challenge for the African continent is, within the slowdown in the Chinese economy, how do African economies position themselves to grab some of the opportunities that will be presented with manufacturers moving base uh, to places, for instance, such as the African continent? You've seen also there's been a shift of production bases away from China into Southeast Asia. And the question for the African continent is, how do you take um, advantage of this shift and how do we as economies take advantage of some of the more permissive trading regimes, for instance, that we have with Western countries. For instance, if you look at Agawa, how do you position Um, yourself to partake in those opportunities by attracting Chinese investment in the lower end of the manufacturing scale? So I think... I wonder if I could jump in there. Um, and just just kind of redirect that, like approach that question from a slightly different angle. Um, I, you know, kind of one of the things that that have come up in the in the discussions recently over the last during the slowdown is what is going to happen with African debt, especially now that so much of of this um, Chinese 
investment obviously is in the form of loans or you know kind of a lot of the Chinese what you call Chinese money came via loans um so I wonder if you could look at the situation of a country like Angola for example that is sits with a, with a significant amount of Chinese debt um, and is, is also to a large extent dependent on selling oil to China in order to to pay off that debt so you know kind of so, so they have a lot of debt and then also the repayment of the debt is dependent on Chinese demand um, for for this for this one very unified economy, um, what does mm. what would, how would you suggest Angola kind of position itself to take to take uh, you know advantage of some of these other opportunities that you've mentioned? Mm. I think the danger for economies uh, such as Angola that are more dependent on one commodity in a sense while exposed to large volumes of debt is that they will probably have to take uh, quite a bit of pain in order to adjust uh, their economic model uh, to to function, I suppose, within the new reality. But I think also I don't really know the percentage uh, of loans, for instance, that are due uh, in the immediate future uh, from the Angolan government to, to the Chinese government. But if you look, for instance, at the Chinese debt model, to African countries, it's been backed up by resources, where, for instance, in the case of Angola, they've received quite a number uh, of loans over a long period of time, whose intention has been to finance infrastructure, but in return, the government there has had to butter some of its own resources, which then helped to fuel the Chinese economy. Now, granted, there is a slowdown in the Chinese economy, but my own sense is that it doesn't per se mean that China is using less oil, for instance. With all the with all the, the, the technological advancements, for instance, that have taken place in terms of green energy, my own guess is that China will still continue to be the, one of the largest consumers, if not the largest consumer of energy resources, especially if you look at oil. Because, of course, cheap oil is good for, for, for China. And I would suspect that the Chinese government will, when necessary, uh, reschedule some of those loans if the situation becomes critical for some of these economies. Because also, as much as you have the economic imperative where these loans need to be repaid, I think one of the things which makes China unique in a sense is that those economic loans also act as some sort of political capital for the Chinese government. Because to my mind at least, China made up its mind some time ago already that as part of its emergence, it needed to, block, to build, in a sense, uh, a certain level of credibility within the emerging world. And Africa being the biggest block, uh, in a sense, of underdeveloped countries in need of the sort of capital that China has been able to dispense up to now, my own guess is that China is not going to be going around there uh, like some sheriffs and demanding payment yesterday um, because I think the Chinese government also would have worked out in terms of its own economic calculus that there are dangers to this funding model and to putting this sort of money on the table for some of these economies. So in a sense, it could be that some of the economic actors, for instance, if you look at China Development Bank, will suffer some pain in terms of their payment periods that had been stipulated previously. But if you look at the political capital and the political mileage that the Chinese government may be able to gain by extending an under 
extending uh, EA in a sense to its African partners because we mentioned Angola, but Angola is certainly not the only country that will have difficulties. If you look at the Sudan, Sudan mm-hmm. may have a lot of economic difficulties. So there's a number of these uh, economies that are hinged on the Chinese economy and that have taken on board quite a bit of debt to finance infrastructure. Some of that money has been used wisely, some not so wisely. But again, I don't think China, the pain is there, but I'm not sure that the pain at this point in time has advanced to a level where China will be willing to risk the political capital it has been able to amass using those resources. Yeah, you make a very good point. And I think, I mean, you've obviously spent quite a bit of time in China. Uh, I've spent a big chunk of my career there as well. And I think one of the the parts that I think that both the African press and the international media are misreading is that they're putting a lot of what's happening through a Western filter. And the Americans in the West have this this habit that, you know, two or three bad quarters of growth, both companies and governments start to pull up and pull out. We're very, very well known yeah. for that. The Chinese, you know, work by a very different set of rules when it comes to time. And the Chinese sense of time is very, very different than in the West. Uh, Take, for example, the way that Deng Xiaoping referenced Taiwan that says, we can wait for 99 years. And that was a very famous saying from Deng Mm -hmm. Xiaoping, and it's absolutely very true. And I think that the investment that the Chinese are making in Africa is not a short-term play. This is a very, very long-term engagement that they are thinking out over decades. So I think in their mindset, that they are that this is a bump in the road, but this is not going to be something that they're just going to pull up and pull out very quickly. That's number one. Number two, um, I think that we have to make a distinction between the private sector and the public sector. And in a lot of the coverage, there hasn't been that. We say the Chinese. But Huawei sees very important markets in Africa, irrespective of how the Chinese stock markets are doing. They need to grow. Mm-hmm. They, need, they cannot simply depend on, on domestic demand. And so I wanted to get your take that when you talk with people, your clients who come to your office and say, what's going on with the Chinese? How do you explain to them the differences between the traditional partners that that Africa and South Africa have had over the years, which have traditionally been in Europe and the United States, with the thinking that the Chinese do, which is radically different than what the West does? Hmm. Look, I think in the short time that I've been back, um, one of the things I've been able to, to pick up, and I think you certainly touch on it, is that the prism through which a lot of us view China is not quite suited to, to what the Chinese are about or how the Chinese define themselves. And also, a lot of us have not moved on in terms of time. A lot of us, I think, are sitting here thinking back 15 years ago when there was something called easy Chinese money where the Chinese were naive uh, in terms of their international business development and how they invested in projects. And I think we are finding more and more that you it's easier, in a sense, I suppose, to do business with a Western company than a Chinese company. Because one, Chinese companies take rather long in terms of decision-making, especially if you are the one soliciting business. It's easier if they come to you because they've made up their mind, their mind and probably it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important imperative for the company to enter into a partnership. So some of those differences I don't think are necessarily coming through uh, with our people. For instance, today I had a meeting uh, where I had a discussion and the question is, what are the Chinese up to on the African continent? 
So as much as people are worried about what's happening in China, I think there's also an acceptance that simply because the stock market has lost 40% of its value does not translate to the Chinese disengaging from the African continent. Yes, there's a need to focus domestically. There's a need to make sure that the fundamentals are correct and that the reforms that have been undertaken over the last two years um, do gain some traction and they do bring about positive changes. But at the same time, internationalizing China, in a sense, is an economic imperative on its own. If you look at what Shanghai Zendai, for instance, is doing with its modern campaign project, I'm one of the people who have been saying that project is not going to go ahead if you look at the amount of money that has to be put in, in light of what's happening and the fact that Shanghai Zendai is one of the companies that has taken a blow uh, from the stock market losses. But just last week, uh, the head of the South African office came out and said, we are proceeding, we've done some of the design work that needs to be done, and we will put the money in because we're talking about a 15-year trajectory. So, in a sense, part of our message is don't allow the noise you know, that you pick up in the media about what's going on in China. Don't allow the noise to cloud your judgment. If there's an opportunity, if there's a partnership that one seeks to pursue with the Chinese entity, perhaps now is even the correct time to go about doing so because as things are, people have to ask themselves the question, decision makers, where else can we be making money? For instance, if you look at the real estate sector in China and how expensive property is, and if you look at the supply of buyers, if you are a real estate developer in China, you have to ask yourself the question, which parts of the world are underserved and where would the money make the best, um, you know, where would you get the best return? In the world. And if you ask me, Africa is the place where you can put money into real estate. Of course, you have to be very careful about where you put that money because not all economies are the same in terms of consumer affordability. But if you had to look at a place like South Africa, there's something called the gap market, which is people who are unable or who struggle to gain access to finance because they earn a bit too little for the banks to find them attractive, but also they don't qualify for government housing because they earn their over. Uh, the qualifying amount. Now, these are opportunities that I think Chinese companies are looking for. And these are opportunities that African companies, African governments, must be on the lookout for. This is no time to disengage. This, Kobus, now let me take that point of view and, and kind of throw it your way, because it's not just the media that is saying this about the Chinese and maybe their their possible disengagement. We're also hearing it for academic from academics as well. Uh, Chatham House, which is the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, uh, their Africa program director, Dr. Alex Vines, uh, he published an article, uh, Africa Looks West Again, where he kind of uses Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe, who is an old, old friend of China and one who China has stood by for many decades. He's indicating that, well, maybe he's not abandoning his look east policy to look west. And, you know, for me, that's kind of a bogus kind of premise here, in part because how much does Robert Mugabe represent in terms of Africa and his prevailing kind of the, the, the currents, if you will, politically across the continent? But it, so I just kind of want to bring up, just to follow up on what Tembinkosi was saying in terms of the media getting on this bandwagon, but it also seems like academics are also pr- pr- promoting this. 
Well, you know, you know, as as I understood the Vines piece, um, I don't know that he was necessarily saying that 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 Mugabe and Africa is disengaging from China, but rather that they're reengaging with the West and then kind of leaving open the question to which extent you can do both. Um, the you know, but the the issue I think is also I, I agree with you that that Robert Mugabe might not have a lot of of economic clout in Africa, but he certainly has a symbolic presence. Um, and I think, you know, the way that I understood it, the, 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 uh, is that if, if Robert Mugabe makes the gesture of, of actually saying that they might consider re-engaging with the West, that's, that I would read that as a kind of indication that everyone else has already is already considering re-engaging with the West, and Robert, because Robert Mugabe would be kind of the last person to actually say that, you know, kind of so 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 he's he's a kind of a bellwether in a way of where I think um, opinion lies, um, because he is known as being so staunchly anti-Western, um, and you know, kind of he, he has he's made so much of his so much of his of his persona is based on this idea that he's this incredible anti-Western kind of freedom fighter. I think what the interesting point that Vines also made was that why. Well, even Mugabe is, seems to be kind of pivoting somewhat back to the West, although we will have to see what that would actually mean in reality. Um, South Africa isn't, you know, kind of, and that South Africa is 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 engaging stronger with China even in the moment of China's economic downturn. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that's interesting. I mean, just two things. One, in the first place, obviously, uh, Robert Mugabe is in a lot of financial trouble, um, you know, and I think China has over the last while proven to be a bit more of a tough, tough, yeah, hard nose. They turned a cold shoulder predator. to him. They really turned a cold shoulder. Yeah, like they the recently again, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of was very, very pointedly sent accountants over to see, you know, kind of whether the, the repayments will happen. Um, so, the, so there's that, you know, because I think, I think he's, uh, you know, kind of he, he has, is running out of options. Um, but, you know, kind of what I actually want to ask Tim Minkosi about is, uh, Tim Minkosi, as, as someone who's, who's, you know, kind of spent so much time in the South African embassy in, in Beijing, I wonder if you could slightly unpack the relationship between, between the ruling parties, between the, the Chinese Communist Party and the, and the ANC, and between the South African government and the Chinese government in terms of, like, where, where, Except for economic engagement, where where else does this relationship lie? It, because it seems to me that there is a lot of ideological and even emotional connections between the two that might explain the, this stronger and stronger engagement despite some kind of economic rockiness. Yes. Look, um, it's, it's a bit difficult to speak, for instance, about the party, the party to party, because, of course, being a... a public servant, and some may not actually believe this, that really was not uh, not our business uh, in terms of the day-to-day -day relationship and how people engaged. So we're never really involved in that kind of work. But let me speculate in any case. Is it part of the challenge, I think, uh, when you are within government and you, you observe the commentary, you almost get a sense that there's a view that you know, there are these empty heads in government who have uh, made this determination that China is the BNN all of, of, of where South Africa should be going. And I would argue that's actually quite mistaken. From my point of view, South Africa has actually made a very deliberate decision and come up with a very deliberate engagement strategy on where it wants to go with China. And having read some of the documents and having seen some of the thinking and participated in some of the conversations, 
South Africa is very clear that China presents massive opportunities for this country and that the level of the willingness to engage from the Chinese government is far higher when South Africa comes in there and says, we are not all about profit. We have economic development challenges that we need to be addressing as an economy. For instance, the article I put uh, for, for, for Daily Mother talks about transformation, talks about localization, and all of these things. That's from my own experience of where South Africa has been driving, because South Africa is saying it's all good and well for your companies to come into our country and to do all of these nice, nice things and to make money. But ultimately, that's not what we are about. We have a mandate as a government. We have a people that we need to provide for. And our partnership with you is all about how do we ensure the maximum gain for the maximum number of people. Now, this conversation is easier to have with the Chinese, for instance, because this is precisely what the Chinese have done. For instance, as much as the Chinese become resistant to a conversation about localization and partnerships with economic actors, from a South African point of view, it's easy to say, but this is precisely what you have done in China. The reason why, for instance, all the auto manufacturers want to come into China and want to take advantage of your economy or why you have been able to develop your own auto sector as a country is precisely because you forced these partnerships in the past. Of course, your own economic sectors were different at the time, for instance, if you look at market size. But from my point of view, when, South when China sits there and says, how do we partner with South Africa? China recognizes that partnering with South Africa is an important opportunity for what it needs to achieve on the African continent. Because as much as people talk about South Africa's voice having diminished over the last few years, the point is that South Africa does still carry quite, a, quite an important voice on the continent. If you look at the kind of work that South Africa does, for instance, within the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, it's, it's, it's quite staggering. Now South Africa is co-chairing and we have a meeting coming up in, in, in December between the continent and China. And South Africa is playing a very instrumental role in that. So I think both partners recognize that there's an opportunity in working together and to the extent where both sets of actors are able to sacrifice short-term short -term gains for long-term benefit, that's what both parties need to do. So there is that recognition. Okay. But if I could take you back to the point you were making, for instance, if, you, if you'll allow me, about yeah. Mugabe. I think there's this idea that Mugabe is this Doyen, in a sense, of African politics, or that he's this influential uh, old man. Yes, people recognize the role that the, the old man played in driving African independence and in standing up to the West. But I think we stretch the reality a bit if we assume that countries will automatically follow where Mugabe goes. Because countries know where Mugabe has gone. And they know that as much as it sounds good to talk this anti-West or to take, you know, to, to have this obstructionist attitude when it comes to partnership, people know that it has not benefited Zimbabwe. And if you ask me, he's shifting his view now, he's re-engaging with the West because he recognizes that the conditions on the ground are simply not conducive and there truly is a danger that more and more African leaders will lose 
interest in what happens in Zimbabwe, and not so many of them will be willing to stand up for Zimbabwe. They don't stand up for Mugabe, if you ask me. They stand up against Western interference, not for Mugabe. Mugabe could go tomorrow, they would still stand up for Zimbabwe. So it's not about Mugabe, it's about the West and what the West, how the West has dictated its partnership or its engagement with the continent over the last few decades. Well, let's pick and up on that. Let's, need to go if, that. If I can interrupt you, apologies, uh, about the West. You know, this whole narrative of turning, you know, again, it's it, it's a binary choice, either China or the West, which I think is kind of a garbage way of looking at it. But let's just kind of talk Absolutely. about this idea of turning back to the West, even if that was possible to do kind of, you know, to, to, to make those kinds of switches. I think we've seen in the past couple of years that the United States does not have the ability to direct investment and trade into Africa the same way that China does. You know, President Obama had this Power Africa, which was a $14 billion uh, energy, th- energy deal, uh, and he's ba- he, it's fallen apart. Uh, you, know, you, you know, all this promise of General Electric and these big American companies making investments, they, they're just, it's just promises on paper. And, you know, the United States trade balance with Africa is going in the opposite direction. The ships are leaving Africa full of natural resources and coming back empty. Uh, the United States isn't selling anything to Africa. Europe right now is not in the position to be directing enormous amounts of foreign aid or foreign investment off the continent considering its own economic problems. So let's just kind of pretend that even if Africa wanted to re-engage the West, is there anything actually in the West waiting for them? From a leadership, from a political leadership point of view, um, if you ask me, there's a thing, there's, there is that realization, especially from the U.S., that the last 10 years have been wasted in terms of its relationship with Africa. As much as you have Agawa, which has enabled certain types of opportunity, it hasn't made um, enough headway in terms of building the U- or rebuilding the U.S.'s profile on the African continent. But my view is that much as companies may not be investing heavily currently, I don't necessarily think that's because of the conditions on the continent per se. It could very well be companies are at a phase where they need to consolidate in the markets where they are strongest currently. Because you do have the threat of Chinese companies that are coming in and are shaking up the competitive landscape in ways that perhaps were not anticipated. But also, if you look at the state of the global global economy, uh, broadly speaking, I don't know that there's all this money floating around the world, uh, at least in terms of foreign direct investment, seeking opportunity in areas that need to be developed. But I do think, for instance, as you see uh, a bigger improvement in the U.S. economy itself, you will begin to see a search for opportunity in places that perhaps were not possible previously. I think the positive thing for me is that Africa is actually being discussed as a real opportunity for a change. Well, listen, I think that's an excellent note to leave it on, actually an optimistic note. Kobus, I did not expect that we would end our conversation today 
on a positive note, but we did. We uh, almost never do. <laughs> we almost never do, but particularly on a, on a China-Africa <laughs> economic conversation, Tembin Kosi, you are a bright ray of sunshine in an otherwise gloomy world. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tembin Kosi is the managing director and co-founder of Frontline Africa Consulting in Pretoria, and he's also a former South African diplomat uh, who, go, who has a Chinese name, Guoyi, which I can pronounce much more effectively than his last name. So apologies again for, your, <laughs> for hacking your last name at the top of the show. <laughs> if people want to follow what you're what you're reading and writing, do you participate in social media? Any Twitter, Facebook, or anyone want to follow what Frontline Africa is doing these days? I'm on Twitter at uh, which is T-G-C-O-Y-I. I'm new to Facebook. I'm very bad with Facebook. I okay. still don't understand how Facebook functions. Unfortunately, I only stayed for a month in 2007 and I departed uh, because it was not working for me. Yes. I am on LinkedIn, which is probably my most active space. Uh, LinkedIn, because at least the audience they, is a bit more targeted. But also on the website, uh, we do put up some stuff even now and then. Unfortunately, we're not as prolific as we should be, Okay. Uh, but we do try our best. Hopefully, over the next uh, few months, we will increase it. Well, excellent. We will put links to it all up on our website and uh, up on the show notes of this page, so you can find links to everything that Tim Benkosi has been doing and his various LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, Kobus, before we get into our links, uh, we want to do a little bit of a of a shout-out for our good friends at uh, the China-Africa Research Institute at Johns Hopkins University. And, and this one, actually, Kobus, is ideally is suited for you. There's actually a fellowship that's going out, and we get a lot of emails from people who are requesting information on graduate programs and on professional opportunities and also on fellowships. And the folks at CARI, uh, that's the China-Africa Research Institute, it's headed by uh, none other than uh, Deborah Braudigam, who many of you know as a kind of very prominent China-Africa scholar. And they've got these fantastic grants ranging from $2,000 to $10,000 and that allow you to basically spend a month uh, researching either in Washington, D.C., or you can kind of pick the country of your choice. So, Kobus, does that sound like a good uh, a good fit for you? Yeah, very good one. <laughs> Listen, the deadline, everybody, is October 15th, 2015. So if you're listening to the show on demand in the future and it's past the October 15th deadline, well, you're out of luck. But keep an eye on the Kari website. If, however, you're listening to this before October 15th, uh, go ahead and send an email to uh, Sice Kari, that's S A I S dash C-A-R-I at J-H-U dot E-D-U, or you can go to the Kari website and they'll have all of the information about their SICE Kari fellowships. They're doing a second round call for applications. It's really geared for academics, for journalists, for policymakers, uh, and just kind of nerdy people who are interested in China-Africa relations like we are. So uh, good luck to everybody who's applying for that. And Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing uh, these days and uh, whether or not you're going to apply for a fellowship at, at uh, Johns Hopkins, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You'll see me on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, and we curate a continuous stream of China Africa news stories 24 hours a day. I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Over the last week, you've probably seen me complaining about my DSL life. Yes. Usually I, I tweet about it. It's, it's remarkable what a universal phenomenon that is about complaining about your telecom <laughs> operator. Uh, also, we curate a, a fantastic uh, weekly email newsletter, uh, four to five of the top China-Africa stories, plus a, an academic research article and a podcast. So 
It's a little bit of the kind of Facebook thing that we do, just a, a light version of it. Uh, just go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. You can sign up there. You can also sign up on our Facebook page at China Africa. Uh, just do the, all the dots and Ws for Facebook and you'll find us there. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, best way to do it, go over to iTunes, type in China Africa, and you'll find us right there. And we would be so grateful. I mean, just eternally grateful if you could leave a comment or a rating because it makes it easier for other people to find the show. And we'd love to hear from you. We always appreciate the feedback. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.